You are listening to the Evolution Exchange, a melting pot of ideas and inspiration shared by some of the most successful tech leaders in Asia. I'm Sid, and I help tech companies hire the best salespeople in the market, and today I'm your host. We have the pleasure of being joined by three fantastic speakers who are veterans in building and growing international businesses in Asia. First, we have Sushant Sharma, the founder of Scalian Ventures, a company who helps startups and scale-ups with their go-to-market strategies and sales advisory. Prior to this, he was the Vice President of Sales at Conviva, Cubest Media, and Acido.tv. Next, we have Andrew Baisley, the Head of Southeast Asia and Channels for APJ at Asana. Prior to this, he has worked in Facebook and Tech in Asia in a multitude of commercial leadership roles. And last but not least, we have Anurag Srivastava, a General Manager for APAC at Pindrop. And prior to this, he has advised and skilled multiple early-stage startups, including Saltmine and Vimo, and was in senior leadership roles at a few enterprise tech companies. So it's really great to have you guys here with us today. And just a quick disclaimer before we get into the thick of things. Um, all views and thoughts expressed by our speakers and myself are that of the individual and not that of their companies. So with that out of the way, let's get started. Um, let's start with some introductions. So Sushant, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Sure, sure. Um, so, uh, I mean, my starting my career as a, as a software engineer, like, you know, tens and millions of, of Indians. Uh, after that, I, I did management consulting for a while, got bored of, you know, building PowerPoints and, and, and eventually uh, jumped into enterprise sales. For the last 10 years, I've been in enterprise sales uh, based out of Asia, initially in Hong Kong and most recently in Singapore. Mostly I worked with like Western companies, so European, you know, US acquired companies, enterprise tech companies that have, have wanted to come to Asia back and grow their business in, in Asia back. So that's, that's, that's my. That's the Anurag. Yeah, thanks. Sir. Uh, so um, I've been in technology for about 20 plus years. As you, I think you made a very, very nice introduction. Been working in startups for the last five plus years now for, you know, series A. Now I'm in a series B company. Um, and uh, prior to that, worked with many technology companies like Microsoft, Infofax, Software AG. Um, in my spare time, I'm a venture partner with a venture capital company from India called Cornerstone. So that's a, the thesis for that is B2B Enterprise SaaS. So that keeps me pretty busy and active in the startup community. Uh, and you know, just trying to give back as much as I can to people with best practices. Uh, in fact, we were all in SaaSter recently talking about, uh, you know, the best practices for B2B enterprise SaaS. Fantastic. Andrew? Yeah, thank you. We should come back to Saster and talk about that, what yeah. that means for this part of the world and companies coming here. But um, yeah, it's great to be here. Thank you. Um, uh, I am not Singaporean, if you might have guessed, despite my love for chicken rice. Um, I've been here for just over seven years, but my wife and I are originally from New York. Um, in New York, I started my career in ad tech and media tech. Uh, went through a bunch of mergers and acquisitions, two IPOs, before I eventually landed at Facebook, where I spent uh, about five and a half years, which is what brought me out to this part of the world. So I helped Facebook launch uh, some parts of its business in Australia, and then eventually landing here in Singapore and working across the entire APAC region. Um, after that, I went to Tech in Asia, where I was running the commercial side of that media publication. So these are like events and branded content and advertising, that sort of thing, which was a really incredible experience. They're an incredible publication that 
really truly cares about the startup ecosystem here. So that was that was very unique. And I've spent about the last uh, almost two years at Asana looking after our channel business across the region, which is our primary go-to-market motion for uh, basically all of Asia, except for Japan, Southeast Asia, and Australia. Um, and I also look after the, the business here in Southeast Asia. Fantastic. Yeah. So thank you guys for your introductions. Um, today, we're going to discuss something really interesting. We're going to uncover you know, some of the challenges that you guys have faced when you, guys, when you were growing your businesses in Asia. I think each of you have face similar challenges, but also probably some unique ones. Um, but I think just to start it off, right? What would be, you know, I think, I think it's hard for a lot of people that haven't been in this role to understand exactly what the big challenges are. They may assume to know certain things, but I think, you know, one of the big things is actually communicating with the senior leadership that are not based in Singapore or APEC, you know, how business is actually done. So, Sushant, can you tell us a bit more about, I guess, how you've navigated this and how you've um, managed the stakeholders in that sense? Yeah, sure, sure. So, uh, just to set the context, you know, of the companies that I have worked with, so they have been typically at zero when they started in APEC. So when I joined those companies, they were pretty much at zero to one, that kind of stage. Uh, one of them was, you know, one to 10 uh, stage as well. And these companies are generally 50 to 300 employees, right? They're not huge companies like Facebook or you know some of the big tech companies. So for, and many of the uh, executive leadership, they have not even like traveled to Asia. I mean, forget about like working in Asia. They've not even traveled to Asia back in, the, in their lives, right? So, I mean, that's the kind of context, um, you know, just to paint the picture. I think in terms of challenges, um, I mean, obviously the biggest challenge is the fragmentation in Asia Pac. I mean, there is like 20, 20 odd countries and there are different dimensions uh, to Asia Pac, right? So. I mean, you have low ARPU markets, you have very high ARPU markets, you have mid-ARPU markets. Then within low and mid-ARPU markets, you have large accounts as well, like large potential enterprise customers that you can go after. So how do you build your go-to-market strategy, right? Where do you focus on? So on and so forth, right? So, uh, I mean, ARPU is one, then again, you know, uh, the business maturity is very different. Language is obviously, which is the, the most obvious kind of differentiation and challenge here. Um, yeah, those were like some of the key uh, kind of challenges uh, across asia Pac. When you, when you do sales here. Okay. Do you have anything to build on that? Yeah, I mean, it's uh, about expectations as well, right? Mm -hmm. Like, uh, it, again, it depends, you know, I was explaining this before we started. I've had this unique opportunity of scaling businesses from headquartered companies from India, yeah. uh, from headquartered companies in Singapore, and now bringing in a US company into APAC. Um, and a lot of people have different opinions like India obviously is in the center of Southeast Asia so it's easier reach they, they know a lot about Southeast Asia yeah. for APAC typically they have expanded out of APAC once before, sorry out for the US they've expanded out of US once uh, and typically they go to UK yeah. right so they've had some experience in expansion from the US and that becomes kind of part of their playbook right yeah. but US in many ways in UK in many ways is kind of similar in terms of homogeneous buying behavior, right? Uh, so no one, people really underestimate the uh, fragmentation and the buying behavior in Asia Pac. So I think even before they come here, one of the things we spoke about was, you know, starting the, 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 the education process a little earlier in terms of, all right, not every country in APAC is gonna sell the same way. So if a deal takes, you know, uh, X amount of time and Y amount of dollars that you can get from a particular deal, 
it's you know how would that translate for every region within Asia Pac and Japan, right? Some places the the selling cycle could be double, mm-hmm. and at the same time the you know the ASP that you get from that deal is going to be half. So the expectation setting I feel is extremely important. That that comparison to go to market in EMEA is like a thorn in my side because it is so different. Every, anyone who's operated here knows that. But yeah, you're right. American companies will often expand into EMEA, usually via the UK, and then they think they can just kind of do the same playbook here. Or even worse, they'll go into Australia yeah. and they'll say and like, we're in APAC. APAC. Yeah. yeah, like we're in APAC. It's like, no, you're really not. <laughs> you're in the PAC part. <laughs> yeah. um, but I think that's a really common, a common challenge. I, I think it's also... Uh, I, I see a lot of companies that really need uh, a lot of help on prioritization. And what I mean by that is it's really easy from outside of the region to look at the region and think, you know, like, oh, should we go to India because it's such a giant market, it's the next China, the economy's booming, or should we go to Indonesia because there's 250 million people, or Australia because it's easy and we know how to sell. And companies just really don't know how to make those decisions and need a lot of guidance. In, uh, that prioritization exercise because it's not as simple as just like oh there's a lot of people let's go there yeah so i guess how have you tackled the challenge how how, how have you communicated that to, to the leadership uh, i think for me it's it's um it's a balance between um the realities of the resources that you have available to you and the remit that's given to you so if, if you're working with a company based out of the west that wants to expand to apac and that's all they give you that's kind of, to me, a red flag. Like they should have, you, you need to have some kind of guardrails around that uh, to, to bring focus to the business. So I think you have to look for maybe alignment in what go-to-market strategies or ideal customer profiles, and then start tweaking on that to make it work and find, just find a place to focus and start, say like build the plane while you're flying it here in APAC. But you don't need to, uh, you don't need to like plan it all out ahead of time because it's just too complex. Okay. Have you guys faced any uh, similar challenges in that area in terms of getting their buy-in to understand exactly yeah. how different it is? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Not uh, def- uh, I think with European customers, it was slightly better because uh, European uh, headquarters slightly better because EMEA is also you know fragmented, maybe not as fragmented as APAC, mm-hmm. although they would uh, disagree and they would say that no, it's just as fragmented, but slightly better than the the, the American headquarter uh, companies, right? So I think uh, uh, some of the buy-in that has, uh, some of the conversation that is helping the buy-in is essentially, uh, you know, data usually helps. So if you show them like hard data points about ARPUs, you know, CPMs, like in AdTech word, you know, we use CPM as one of the metric. If we show some some hard data points, that kind of subscription ARPUs and already tell them Netflix doesn't cost the same in India as it cost in US, right? So I think those kind of data points help in telling them what is the end consumer. Uh, situation and then our our customers who are the enterprises selling to those end consumers you know what would be their situation right so I think those kind of data points has helped in in educating the, the HQs a bit oh yeah I think we spoke about the data angle uh, especially when it comes to communicating uh, the realities of the situation on the ground yeah. here yeah. so I guess what what has been the most crucial kind of metrics that have helped you communicate those, the value of impact to, to the leadership. So I'm a very um, governed by leading indicators kind of a guy. So I, I and if you're in go-to-market, 
I definitely believe in activities, right? And activities focused on certain North Star metrics. Mm-hmm. So it's important that there is alignment, number one, on uh, what are the OKRs for the region. You know, this is after all the commitment to the region has been sorted out, right? And then we say, okay, these are the kind of North Stars everyone's going to be focused on and trying to achieve. And then it's really, are we doing the right activities on a daily basis, weekly basis to get us there, right? Because it cannot be, hey, the outcome wasn't achieved. Because yeah, there are things that are going to go wrong, but I think, so one is that the measurement of leading indicators. Second is uh, communication. I, you know, so one of the things I mentioned to you was, I, I have this uh, format that I just do uh, a monthly newsletter to the ELT uh, in every company that I've been in. Just keeps them informed on how's the pipe progressing, you know, what are the kind of key lows and key highs for the month. And I do a lot of selfies. So it gets the fun thing out there as well. Most of them is, are either eating or drinking. So it also gives a wrong impression. People think that's all I do. <laughs> but it's it's a good way to break the ice with you know senior leadership who understand what's happening in, on the ground. Okay. So when it comes to setting those expectations, setting those OKRs, right? I guess, how how what's the process behind it? How do you decide what's best for this company at this stage? For this region, I can go for that first. So, so um, I think for us, and I think it goes back to what is the commitment of the company, right? Mm-hmm. So, in, in Pindrop, for example, they've been thinking about APAC for a while because EDBI is one of our investors as well, right? And then the, the pandemic happened and obviously it all went to hell. But uh, the final decision was made because we've, we, you know, we've done a Series D a couple of years ago. And the idea is as we start progressing and maturing further, we have to prove to investors we're a global company, right? So APAC just becomes so strategic to the overall growth of the company that a $1 here, and I could actually say this, a $1 here is more valuable for the company than a dollar right now in the US because it just increases the valuation of the company and shows the applicability of the technology to different uh, geographies. The other thing is the vertical. You know, we're seeing so much traction here with the government uh, which is not actually our ICP in the US. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if we get that going, it just shows that we've got, you know, cross-referenceability as well. So I think it's important to understand the commitment from the company and how are they perceiving APAC to fit in the larger picture and the growth. That in turn defines the OKRs that you can push for specifically in this region. Okay. I, I think the uh, definitely align with that. I, I've been, I've had the benefit of most of the companies that I've worked with um, have a product-led growth sort of foundation. And we have the privilege of using that as a landing point on understanding in the data, like where there is traction and where we can set up more strategic bets. And you know, one of the things you mentioned was uh, that your ICP might be totally different. We see the same thing. Uh, it, we might have one ICP in North America and that's really similar in EMEA. It could be totally different in different market, markets across APAC. Hopefully you can see that in the PLG motion. You can see where you have like higher churn than usual or lower churn and maybe like stickier growth. And you can start setting those as the areas you want to probe into. I'll just add on to that. So I think one of the biggest contentious topic is actually setting the quota, right? I mean, that's the, at the end of the day, that's, you know, what, what matters, right? So there's also kind of a push and pull between HQ and, you know, they want to give you a bigger quota. You want to take a, uh, you know, smaller quota and so on. So I think one exercise which has really helped is like doing very rigorous bottom-up analysis and not just kind of pulling numbers out of your ass, right? So I think that exercise has helped a lot. And also looking at some historical data as well. If you have, you know, if you're a new company, then 
you don't have that kind of historical data but you, if you if you have you use it if you don't have the data you reach out to you know your peers you know who, who have been in the market on a dog you know people like andrew and you get some benchmarks that you can use right so win rates uh, you know sales cycles so on and so forth right and then you map it against the the sales capacity that you have and that gives you you know gives you a bit of uh, comfort as to what would be the realistic quota of course you're given much higher than 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 you the number that you put forward right uh, but i think that data driven kind of bottom sub regress analysis i think that has helped a lot i think the, the quota too it doesn't always have to be revenue it could be things like new logos or key like can a I list of logos can I that yeah right no it's not I, I would say it's not like that at, at asana but um, but i have seen companies that have some success with that yeah uh, yeah but i completely agree i think the okrs uh, have to be defined well aligned with the global growth the other big thing that came to my mind right is the aspects and this is andrew sweet spot actually is around partnerships uh, in the us especially with uh, any company with sub 100 million Uh, in revenues they've typically done a direct motion unless it's obviously pure plg but even pure plg would be kind of direct right so they don't they don't understand the relevance and the importance of partnerships in apac uh, and uh, that's one of the education that we actually have to do when you start talking to companies who are not and this goes back to even com- the the company that i worked in which was initially india headquartered then we finally moved our headquarters to the us but initially it was from india and even there it was all direct motion So when we moved to Southeast Asia and globally, you know, getting the partnership mindset was so important. Uh, and even in Pindrop, you know, we spent like a few months before joining. I just kept talking about the importance of partnerships. Now, some ICTs, Andrew, to your point, will be direct, like maybe government, for example, right? But there are so many geographies and so many other verticals where we have to rely on partners. And I'm sure you can add a lot yeah. of color. Yeah, I mean, there, this comes back to like my previous point on you're going to have natural guardrails in your business and investments that you can and can't make. And not every company, in fact, most companies can't open an office in every major city around the world and hire people that speak that language and have those relationships. So partners are key to that. I mean, you you really only have you have the choice of relying on PLG if you have it, um, or building making a huge investment in building a local presence in these countries. or working with partners it's like the yeah. it's a good happy medium but it also it's like the reason that it exists and the reason that that's so successful speaks to the underlying truth of like what is different about apac and it's that you need local operators you need local relationships you need to build a local currency and yeah. you need to see your customers face to face and partners are, are a good way to do that actually this uh, you know this executive buy in and alignment is a very important topic so i want to add a few more things and because uh, you know ram mentioned that he sends a monthly newsletter photos and so on so one thing which has really worked for us uh, in the past is that bring in all the cxos to asia like do a road show at least on a quarterly basis and bring a different cxo every time so don't bring the same cro like all the time right bring a cro once then next quarter bring a cpo cto you know cfo so on and so forth so everybody gets a flavor of you know what apac is take them to different markets you know in one week you can easily cover southeast asia and india right or japan and and you know uh, greater china for example right so you can do like those one or two these kind of road shows i think that really helps the other thing which has also helped is um, building allies with other region right so if you have vp counterpart vp emia or vp latam i think they would be more sympathetic to your situation right fragmentation and and so on and so forth so if you build like those kind of allies outside of the hq and when you go into like you know skos or you know planning sessions mm-hmm. the quota setting sessions and so on and so forth then those allies keep coming very handy because then 
you can support each other in your kind of arguments when you put forward. Absolutely, I, I completely. That's that, I mean that's absolutely an important point uh, because I just had an exec leave last night, <laughs> so I think we need to keep rotating the execs that come for sure. The other big thing that just came to my mind, uh, Sid, was um, the support that the Singapore government gives, right? I think companies from India or the US don't understand the magnitude of support that you can get in Singapore. Uh, whether it's Enterprise SG, whether it's IMDA, whether it's EDB or EDBI, MSIC, GIC, just the whole you know consortium of companies, mm-hmm. the the government-linked venture labs and accelerators that are there that can you know spec- get your deal flows. Um, if you're in the right sector. If you're in the right sector. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But but yeah, so I think from a like my CEO was down here last year and when we had a meeting with IMDA, once they understand right the relevance of IMDA and Enterprise SG, um, and because it, they call for literally due diligence, you have to open up your financials and books and you need that to be communicated directly with the CEO for them to say that, oh, okay, this, this makes sense. I mean, I want to put, I want to put my, uh, my muscle behind IMDA or Enterprise SG because if we open up our books to them and they feel happy with us, then we are going to get X amount of pipeline, Y amount of business. Mm-hmm. And okay, so I think we spoke about this the last time uh, we caught up. Um, was having like a, a champion in the HQ. Yeah. Kind of, I wouldn't say fight your battles, but I guess help push things in the right direction. Um, how, how have you done that successfully? And I guess, what have the effects been for you? I, I think for, this has been a key strategy for me. And I think there, I, I've been lucky enough, and I think most of us these days are lucky enough to work in businesses that are pretty diverse. And we have people all over the world that are sitting in, in places where Western companies are typically headquartered, like Silicon Valley or New York or London, um, are very diverse cities. So I've not been ashamed of taking advantage of that at all. I will reach out to people like Prashant, our CTO, and ask him to advocate for things that we need to support our Indian business. He understands that business and how business gets done there. Another example that's like not as obvious as the CTO is we were working on some localization efforts for Indonesia, and I found a Indonesian engineer that just works on a product at Asana sitting in California and sort of enrolled her as our on-the-ground advocate when we were talking about spending and investing in, in translating things to Bahasa Indonesian. Um, she was there supporting us and explaining to people like who the big players are in the market and why they're important and how business gets done there. And it's not her responsibility or Prashant, our CTO even, um, to carry that torch for us, but they can definitely like put some wind at our sails. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm a big believer of building your own mafia in, you know, whichever company you, you, you join, right? So I think sometimes you're kind of lucky that you bump into ex-colleagues. So, you know, in some of my companies, I've worked with people that I've worked before. So they have helped in, in bridging those gaps. Uh, but yeah, I totally agree with, uh, with Andrew and in terms of like finding a champion in the, in the HQ, right? And I think we should take advantage of all the headquarter events, right? So whether it's sales kickoff or similar kind of events, right? We should try to like purposely go there and, and build those kind of uh, champions and alliances because they're definitely, and, and not just in sales, right? Not just because we are in the sales hall, but in product tech, you know, some of the other organizations also. I also, I look for people that, I know this is kind of silly, but I'll look for people that are just going on holiday. Like if somebody's yeah, coming yeah, out to Bali, right. yeah. I'm going to ping them and yeah. say like, stop over in Singapore yeah. or, hey, let's meet up in, in Jakarta. 
Um, and it, it, there's also like, you definitely will not find a shortage of product people that <laughs> want to go on a company trip to like Korea or Tokyo or something. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. yeah. yeah. no, I, I agree. I think for a lot of the companies from the US or even India, when they're heading out, um, it's a lot of learning for them also. A lot of exposure to different cultures they've not been ever, you know, been introduced to earlier. So there is a personal win and a professional win to make sure that APAC succeeds, right? I mean, one of the three tenets my CEO has is to make sure that international growth is successful because that's, that's in his mind, that's his KPI apart from, you know, a few other things on profitability and everything else, but international success is super critical. So once the people in the company align to that, then what do you need, man? We'll make it happen, right? Fantastic. So I think that the next critical part about building a business in APAC is about literally building the teams, hiring. So I guess what would be some of the challenges that you faced and I guess the hiring philosophy you have to overcome those challenges and make the right hires. Uh, Andrew, would you like to go first? Sure. I, I don't feel like it's anything like too revolutionary, but we try to hold a really high bar and we hire people that are uh, have demonstrated expertise in their field, but also uh, we're very open to looking at people and different profiles that maybe wouldn't traditionally fit into what you would first think of as someone in a particular role. So we try to, um, you know, hire, hire teams from a very diverse background. Um, I, I know that a lot of people struggle to hire especially in smaller markets like Singapore. And I think it does take time and investment to hire the right people. But I also think it's unfair to categorize or characterize Singapore as having some kind of lack of talent, because I, I really don't think that's true. I think there's a lot of very ambitious and um, very capable people here that you can tap into for different things. So I, I, again, I don't think it's like super groundbreaking or revolutionary, but we, yeah, we look for really great people from diverse backgrounds and we look for them here in Singapore. I, I think, uh, sorry, the, the, definitely recruiters are important in certain markets. So if you think about Japan, you need a, a senior hires, you need yeah. a recruiter, right? Uh, you need someone who can actually get you the right set of people and then you can kind of manage with that. Most of the other markets, you can go by word of mouth or mm -hmm. you know, some connections. Um, the other thing that I've seen is, and I've learned the hard way, is uh, back channeling. Just making sure that you've got enough information on references done uh, from this from this person, uh, not from the references they give you, but you know from other connections that you can somehow get in front of, right? Because that just reveals so much. Because uh, there are enough and more very capable people, Andrew, to your point, who just somehow are not able to deliver for some reason, right? And uh, it's important to back channel that information to find out is there more to just the talk. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. Uh, on the recruiter point too, I, I think um, the analogy I think of is if you were to go do enterprise sales in a country like Japan or in Korea, um, you wouldn't just like put a price up on your website and hope that it happens. You have to have the, those relationships. Yeah. It's the same with hiring in those leadership roles. Like you have to have someone on the ground who has those relationships. Exactly. I think with the hiring, I mean, I would mention a couple of uh, points on how to go like deep into, into hiring the right profile, right? So generally in these kind of go-to-market region roles, you, you have a large team, right? So you're marketing, you know, customer success, inside sales, sales reps, all of them kind of reporting to you. 
But ultimately, I think the two profiles which really matter is the the hunter, the people who go after new business, and the people who are managing and expanding the existing accounts, right? So let's call them customer success account management role. So what I've seen again in the context of the kind of company that I have worked with, 50 to 100, 200 employee companies, zero to one or one to ten kind of, uh, uh, you know, the KRR range. For hunter role, I typically go for the scrappy ones, who are people who have worked in a, in a similar company before, right? Not from the big ones, you know, no no disrespect to like Salesforce and IBM and Microsoft and so on and so forth, but um, you know, people who who have not really worked in a lot of structure, right? They just scrappy. They they know how to navigate new new accounts and you know even without any relationships and so on and so forth. So that's on the hunter side. On the customer success side, I go the other way. So I hire people from really you know well established companies like Salesforce and AWS and all, because they can bring a lot of method to the, to the madness, right? They can bring a lot of structure to the chaos. Because in a in a when you're serving large enterprises, that's what you need, right? You want someone who can bring structure and manage different stakeholders properly. Whereas on the hunter side, I mean, you don't need that kind of structure. You want someone who can navigate, talk to like ten different stakeholders, line up and close the deal, right? So very two extreme, you yeah. know, kind of profiles. That's an excellent point, actually. Um, I never thought of it that way. I think I'm gonna take that away. Yeah. Like, I'm like in the back of my mind. I'm like, oh, that's good. I like that. I think the other big thing, and this goes back to expectation setting as well, right? Um, one of the things that when you know uh, the Pindrop CEO was down here with his technical advisor, and they were kind of scouting around the market, and um, when we were having a chat, and he says, "Hey, what do you need to make this region successful?" Uh, by then, I'd had enough interactions with this technical advisor, and I was like, "Relocate him to Singapore, and we'll make this a success." Right? And you know, with, with uh, all the things fell in place, and he's actually relocated, so it's worked out well for us because. Uh, Tim Pruga is just—he's just a beast, um, and it's amazing having him here because you know we're able to kind of work and complement each other in terms of market, uh, how we're going to market, and how we're managing the technical side. Most importantly, someone like that brings connections to HQ, you know, to the head coach, to the engineering team, to the product team, and this maybe has nothing to do with the US-based companies. Even when I was in Vimeo, I was fortunate enough to have somebody from. India relocated to Singapore, like the pieces who had been there five years. Uh, Ashish, phenomenal guy, and he had all these connects back as well. So that I think is a is a winning combination, especially if you're the first two boots on the ground. You know. Yeah, there's something magical about like even as a GM, you can ask for all these resources and all these all these things you need from headquarters and bang the drum. But uh, yeah, when you have that one person that they've worked there for a while, who they you know they have a relationship. They can just like one Slack message, and suddenly yeah. it's magic. It just gets done. <laughs> it's like, oh, I understand what you're saying. Yeah, it's doing this a lot. I mean, this guy literally goes like, uh, "Hey, we really need this. Yeah, no problem. I mean, it's done by tomorrow, right? <laughs> like, how, how did you do? It? Don't ask. You. Like, I've been asking for this forever. Yeah, now it's just relationships. Yeah, it helps a lot. Yeah, I think what you mentioned is true. It's like it's really important to have a really good pre-sales technical guy mm-hmm. who can help you sell. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I guess. How? What's been the I guess the most interesting success story about you having that technical genius in place that actually helped you close like a significant deal? Any anyone have any stories to share? That? Yeah, I think for us it's a little. I mean, some of our sales are very technical, but the the value that our solutions engineers here add is they add this translation layer between what is the value proposition of piece of software in the context of a Silicon Valley company, which is often, there's like a lot of platitudes and 
big change the world type of mission, which is great. And it gives us all a North Star. Um, but what a lot of our clients here need is like practicality and use cases. So it's acting as that translation layer, which can get quite technical of like, well, what does it actually do for my business? Like, what is, how does it move the needle for me? How does it make my people more productive or save me money? Um, and I think that, at least in my experience, the team here has played a really key role in big enterprise accounts in places like Indonesia, Vietnam, Thailand. Yeah, I think, I mean, my experience, the, the and I have not actually seen that many people in, with that profile, is the, you know, those kind of places, people who can really articulate technology in a very, very simple speak, who can talk to the CMO, explain them the technology without even talking about the technology at all, right? Down to the engineer level, where they can go really like hardcore on the technical uh, details and all. I have honestly, I've met like maybe one or two people in my entire career, very, very extremely hard to find. Completely agree. And you get lucky, you know, if you find such guys, because uh, to your point, right? If you're able to go from business value to a customer, to impact that they can deliver, down to, hey, this SQL query has an issue with yeah, that. Yeah. That's phenomenal range, right? Um, the other thing is the ability to, you know, sometimes in a lot of markets like Japan, they will like function test the hell out of your product, right? And and help you believe that you need a separate version for Japan that actually works, unlike the ones that you've been selling all this while. Uh, and there it helps to have somebody who's from the company who sees Man, they're not, I mean, they're being serious. They genuinely need to test all these things. So I've got to push my engineers and product and, you know, folks to make it better. Uh, similarly, technical queries, right? I mentioned about IMD and a few others now. So the conversations we've had with them, if it was me or some other pre-sales guy asking headquarters for documentation, it just won't cut it. But you have this guy who understands why are they asking for this and what exactly can I get so it helps fulfill that gap, right? Uh, and that's really, it's very difficult to find. Yeah, very difficult. Yeah. Actually, I take it back, not even to have only met one such person. Right, so I have one interesting question. I think it's a bit of a twist. Uh, just, just popped into my head. Yeah. Uh, what is one mistake that you made uh, in the last year and one success? that you've had in the last year that you would carry into the future. <clears throat> uh, no, let me rephrase that. What is one mistake that you made that has changed the way you look at how you manage your teams? Well, not in the last one year, but I can just say, you know, one mistake that I've done, you know, the hard way is that uh, not letting go of people soon enough, right? So. I mean, there are situations where you know that the person is just the skill doesn't doesn't is, isn't there or is not putting in the effort and so on. But sometimes we tend to like keep those people in just because you know the person has been in the company for a while or you know you are just like a soft person yourself, right? I think not letting go of people soon enough is is one of my biggest mistakes. I would say. Yeah, I think the I think the thing like is that we're you know we've just wrapped up our planning for this fiscal year and. Um, so we're kicking off a new fiscal and, and very excited about that. In that process, you look back at the previous year. And for me personally, I think that the mistake that I have made and made with my team is really trying to do too much with too little. I hate saying no to like opportunity in the business, even if it's completely outside of my purview. And I, I, um, I probably 
when I take things on, that obviously has a downstream impact on the team. And I just need to do a better job this year at prioritizing the places where we can focus and have the biggest impact as a team. Um, and I think we will do that. And I think I openly talked to my team about like where we've had some of those missteps and what are some of the things that we should reprioritize. I think they're bought into that. But at the same time, looking forward, I'm so excited and optimistic because of those same people. Like that's the thing that I got right was the people that we hired. And um, you don't get it right every single time, but the team that we have in place now is honestly incredible. I think from my perspective, mistake, yeah. So again, it depends on the stage of your life. Um, so I feel, I, I felt uh, post 40 uh, because I've been a core tech and fintech and short tech guy. And then I made this move to a prop tech company for a while. It was, it was great going. I mean, we were doing really well, but I realized it's not my strength. So I'm a huge advocate now of, you know, if you're 40 plus, maybe just double down on your strengths uh, and just, you know, try and make that uh, happen. And I kind of worked with the teams also on that. So if it's, you know, you're young, you're going after the experience and the range, great, but you know, after some time consolidate. And I think something that I would continue to repeat is, uh, you know, apart from, you know, you have to make sure is the person the right fit for the organization, but it's also not hiring too fast. You know, you've got to make sure that there's enough for them to do. You know, when all the times, the number of companies have been first boots on the ground, new business, um, I take the hit because there's literally nothing, right? You're yeah. doing zero to one. But I have to ensure that the next guy who comes in, there's enough for them to work on, enough for them to be successful. And for that product market fit, making sure you're going after the right people in different markets, all that ironing that out and then doing the hiring, right? I think that's something I've learned along the way and that's a very good practice that I stick to even now. So I'm, ne I'm never in a hurry to hire people. I'm like, let's prove it out. I'll do all the work that's required till then. Maybe get, you know, my partner in crime, but pre-sales, but you got to prove it out before you hire. Yeah. I agree. You, you have to like feed the machine. Like if you're, if headquarters says, oh, you're going to expand the APAC. The next question is like, okay, what are we going to do? Like, where are we going to feed it? Where yeah. do, do you have leads somewhere? Do you have like some, some, Know, a foot in the door, yeah. you have something. It's the same as you expand. Every time you gotta feed, keep feeding them. And, and you know, Andrew, on that point, there have been cases in the past where, um, especially, and this is for all the listeners, right? If you've raised money, investors and board will say, all right, we need to add two headcounts a, a month. We gotta get this machine going. But you're like, hang on, there's no product market fit yet. You know, <laughs> get what machine going? You know, yeah. where if I hire a guy, I'm setting them up for yeah. failure. There's no point. And if they found right. the fit in the in the US or in, in, in Europe, but that doesn't mean that they found the, uh, the fit in APAC. Yeah. Brilliant. Anyway, that's all the time we have for today. And I really appreciate all of you uh, sharing your thoughts and insights. Yeah, I think the time flew by quite a <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, We didn't realize it. I think it's more than, yeah, it's quite a good one. Uh, and yeah, really enjoyed the conversation. I hope you guys did too. And I think our listeners definitely did. So, you know, stay tuned for more and we'll see you on the next one. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Dennis. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.